Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. For this episode, I'm here with Professor Catherine Young, who's an associate professor of law at Boston College Law School, who's worked extensively on human rights, including social and economic rights as constitutional rights. She's currently working on the Oxford Handbook of Economic and Social Rights. Professor Young, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, Professor, I wanted to start with just some really basic questions about really the evolution of human rights. So human rights, of course, as you know, in practice and theory, is one of those few arenas in which international law goes beyond seeking to order relations between countries and actually reaches in and touches the lives of individuals directly. Now, the U.S.'s role in establishing kind of a vibrant human rights tradition after the Second World War, I think is really well established. I know that there have been some valid criticisms of the United States over the years, but by and large, it's largely considered to be a major force in support of human rights norms. So the basic question that I wanted to start with now is, has that era, if you will, of U.S. law and policy shifted. How, where are we in the present moment when you think about it from the U.S. orientation or position towards human rights and human rights norms? Well, we can't, have come out of a very bumpy decade for human rights, Catherine. Uh, the last decade in, is a significant one for human rights backsliding around the world. There's a lot of evidence of various civil and political rights regressions, uh, as well as economic, social and cultural rights. And the US has played an interesting role. There is this continued uh, sense of an American exceptionalist position with a lot of leadership in human rights promotion uh, that came through during the Obama administration and that is now coming through in its own particular way through a Trump administration. Uh, Alongside that leadership has always been evidence of a real resistance to the way human rights is perceived abroad. That's what makes up the American exceptionalist position. I think we do find ourselves at a real uh, fork in the road of how that exceptionalism will play out. So let's turn to some of the more recent announcements from the Trump administration. So as you're aware, last year, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the U.S. State Department would be forming an advisory committee, what's called the Commission on Unalienable Rights, to advise him on matters of human rights policy. Now, Secretary Pompeo said that in his announcement of the commission that he hoped it would, quote, provide the intellectual grist of what I hope will be one of the most profound re-examinations of inalienable rights in the world since the 1948 Universal Declaration. I just wanted to to segue quickly to some clips from the announcement around some of the the questions around the formation of the commission. I hope that the commission will revisit the most basic of questions. What does it mean to say or claim that something is in fact a human right? How do we know or how do we determine whether that claim that this or that is a human right is it true and therefore ought it to be honored? How can there be human rights? rights we possess not as privileges we are granted or even earn, but simply by virtue of our humanity belong to us. Is it in fact true, as our Declaration of Independence asserts, that as human beings, we, all of us, every member of our human family are endowed by our creator 
with certain unalienable rights. We must therefore be vigilant that human rights discourse not be corrupted or hijacked or used for dubious or malignant purposes. It's a sad commentary on our times that more than 70 years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, gross violations continue throughout the world, sometimes even in the name of human rights. International institutions designed and built to protect human rights have drifted from their original mission. As human rights claims have proliferated, some claims have come into tension with one another, provoking questions and clashes about which rights are entitled to gain respect. Nation states and international institutions remain confused about the respective responsibilities concerning human rights. Now, Professor Young, as a general matter, these questions go very basic to the very foundations of the human rights system. What do you think it means to ask these questions? Are these the questions the international committee should be asking? Questions about the foundations or the content of human rights can be benign, even productive. And I think it's a sign of the vibrancy and the pluralism of contemporary examinations of human rights, whether from standpoints of philosophy or anthropological framings, we really see a variety of well-argued positions. But Catherine, yeah, I think it's fair to say uh, that the posing of these questions becomes less benign when done by a newly created governmental body within a single nation state with an explicit call to re-examine human rights without multilateral assistance and without the informational resources of the post-war human rights institutions, as well as a very deliberately constrained, backward-looking mandate and a somewhat opaque process of consultation. Indeed, I think if that same power has, at the same time as the US has done, withdrawn from UNESCO, which is the institution responsible for marshalling uh, the many different philosophical and religious viewpoints. It was at the time in 1947, before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was promulgated in 1948. If that institution uh, has been uh, withdrawn from, but also the UN Human Rights Council, the successor to the UN Human Rights Commission, which drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And if we see, we've seen withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, uh, the reduced funding to various UN institutions, and the sidelining of uh, the, the one's own human rights officials and diplomats within the State Department, as has been reported, then these questions do become more troubling. And this is why I, I state in this case the worry that the present Commission on Unalienable Rights may present a new and quite complicated version of the American exceptionalism that I was describing. Less of the leadership in human rights promotion that was part of this exceptionalism, but far more of the exemptionalism and the resistance to aligning US foreign policy with human rights abroad. So, Professor, I want to dig into that a bit because I think you answered a question that popped into my mind, which is you've spoken to American exceptionalism, a trend that, that you, you've talked about the bumps over the last decade. It sounds to me like you think this is a new breed of exceptionalism or is this something entirely different? What is exactly the difference here that you see that you say is concerning? I think what comes out as concerning is, again, these references to mission drift and malignant purposes. I think there's a real signal here of disdain for the international institutions of the post-war period. Uh, so it's a basic point. It's obviously worth remembering that the Universal Declaration 
managed to designate that common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations under quite pressured conditions. It was an 18-member delegation drawn from the mere 56 states with UN membership at the time, and it incorporated civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights with the steady leadership of Eleanor Roosevelt for the United States. And it's her diaries and letters which actually form the basis of Marianne Glendon's work on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Marianne Glendon is, of course, heading the commission. Um, this Universal Declaration of Human Rights is clearly a landmark. Uh, it's not a treaty, though, and its representativeness is truncated by the conditions of colonisation that were still ongoing in 1948 and explains that very low membership. Uh, the international community looks, therefore, to follow-up treaties as part of the International Bill of Rights. This was infamously split, and I refer to U.S. participation in that split and its membership of only one side of the treaties that resulted from that split, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights uh, and uh, the U.S. not being a party to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Of course, this framework of the International Bill of Rights comes with significant international consensus abroad. So there are 173 state parties to the ICCPR, there are 170 to the ICESCR, and this is a, 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 a significant consensus, if an imperfect one, uh, that stands alongside other domestic and regional human rights instruments. Um, this should be the starting point, I think, to any inquiry of what human rights are. These words of mission drift, I think, signal a disdain for those institutional developments. But on a deeper level, I think Secretary Pompeo may be signalling a more substantive rejection of the pluralism of human rights arguments within these various traditions, certainly as, as the bodies responsible for human rights monitoring are reasoning and engaging deliberatively with each other and with claimants too in assessing their claims on dignity or equality or freedom. Going to the commission itself, and as you, as you just discussed, you know, there's a lot, um, including critics of the commission, that are trying to anticipate some of the positions that the commission may take, including by analyzing the commission's chair, as you've referenced, Marianne Glendon, as to what perspective or particular perspective on human rights they expect that the commission will come out with? Is this going to be a walk back of rights discourse or where, how are they going to chart this path? And I think in some ways you could take a look at what the Trump administration has done so far in a concrete fashion. And I'm thinking of course, of the position taken last year by the Trump administration before the Supreme court, that the civil rights act of 1964 does not protect people who are transgender or people who are gay. If the commission takes similar positions in the international human rights space, what kind of effect do you think that could have? What is the, what is the ripple effect you, you think would occur with respect to the larger international human rights regime? I think it's important, Catherine, to view this, the commission's work in this domestic context, as well as in the context of the significant walking back or the, the backsliding in human rights protections outside the United States. One worry is that the Commission's activities will provide a cover to those backward shifts, not only by attempting to codify a narrow and parochial view of these so-called unalienable rights, 
but also by permitting other states to conduct their own cherry-picking exercises in human rights definition. So in thinking about a US foreign policy aligned only with the Commission's unalienable rights, it's difficult to really assess it at this point. A report hasn't been produced and it's very difficult to access the transcripts which haven't been published. But we can think of serious damage. On the one hand, we, we might predict that certain rights might be weaponized. And this was a worry expressed by one speaker at the Commission's hearings, Kenneth Roth of Human Rights Watch, who worried that the right of religious freedom might trump freedom from discrimination, particularly on the part of women or racial and religious minorities. He didn't use the Trump metaphor, but I think it's a good one. It's actually a long-standing metaphor used in human rights arguments, ironically. Uh, it's used to signal that there's a categorical form of rights-based reasoning, uh, that other uh, issues can't come into consideration. But I think I'm using this metaphor to signal a more difficult settlement of uh, the questions that are known to be challenging questions merely by the show of power rather than the engagement with reason. On the other hand, alongside these weaponized rights, we might see other rights becoming disarmed. And these are particularly those extended to groups previously excluded in natural rights traditions. And so this is true of uh, women, of children, of people with disability, of racial and ethnic minorities, of indigenous peoples, of migrant workers, and certainly of LGBTQI individuals, which you've mentioned. And all of these groups have demonstrated that the protection of freedom and equality and dignity does require their recognition as equals. Their claims have been made in international fora. Moreover, I want to point to gains that have been made around the understanding of economic and social rights. These are rights to education or to healthcare or social security, housing, land, water, sanitation, these may also be disarmed by this narrow focus of the Commission at a moment when these rights are becoming highly resonant in human rights campaigns. Uh, they're increasingly formulated in different social movements from the global north or the global south and sometimes have been uh, put forward in litigation. And so whether these are movements that are engaged in anti-austerity claims or in access to medicines movements, or water justice, food security, or campaigns addressing tax evasion. We're really seeing a flourishing of these arguments, and it would be serious, I think, if these moves were sidelined. So what is the ultimate message that you think our listeners should take away from this? What do you see as the future of human rights in the international order, and what do you anticipate the role of the United States to be in that future? Well, predicting the future is not for the timid, but I would point to trends that support a quite optimistic view uh, and also trends that point to a much darker outcome on the prospects for human rights. I think the more rosy view would track the multifold articulations of human rights that we've seen in the vast majority of the world's constitutions, uh, particularly since the 1990s. Only 17 of the world's constitutions now do not contain an economic and social right, for example. More than three quarters enshrine at least one formally justiciable economic and social rights, meaning courts can hear complaints about them. And more than two thirds of the constitutions do guarantee equality on the basis of sex. 
So alongside that view, one could also draw out what's been described as evidence of hope by Catherine Sikink, that there are budding social movements as well as long-standing ones that have formed in increasingly decentralised, network-like network ways and have agitated for protection with the support of the UN treaty bodies and its special rapporteurs, to name just two examples of the institutions providing forums of coordination as well as increasingly sophisticated methodologies of accountability. Now, the darker view would track the numerous instances I've mentioned of human rights retrogression occurring in nation states, including those with more established rule of law traditions, such as the United States, and those with more recent transitions to democracy that are now under threat. UN institutions weakened by a lack of funding and by a frankly active demagoguery against their global multilateral coordinating role uh, would be unable in this view to prevent human rights abuses, particularly as new pressures occur from the climate crisis or from artificial intelligence or from escalating economic inequality, to name just a few around the corner. Uh, the world's most vulnerable will experience, in this view, an ever-increasing repression and violence, and the human rights of all but the very few will lack any viable mechanisms of accountability and support. So both of these views have plausibility, uh, and I would want listeners to, to consider both of them. Uh, uh, one doesn't have to subscribe to the view that human rights can only be safeguarded by certain great powers uh, to still acknowledge that the US has an undeniably powerful hand in which view gets to win out. Um, I think even the more rosy view I've mentioned acknowledges that complacency on the global or local level is not something that anyone can afford and that we should be paying close attention to this commission and to other US developments. Indeed. And so I'm going to ask you an unfair question because I don't believe you to be faint of heart, but on this spectrum of rosy to dark, where do you, where are you? I take, um, I take the point of many that for social change to occur, a certain amount of rosiness is a kind of uh, essential requirement, but I, I do tend to see uh, real merits in the, in the dark of you. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. And for those of you that want to join, please go to ASL.org and become a member today. Thank you.